Welcome to the weekly podcast of Calvary Chapel, South London, a church where the truth of God's word meets and transforms the reality of our daily lives. We hope you are impacted by this week's teaching. Thank you, Father, for this time. Thank you, Father, for the presence of your spirit among among us, Lord, to aid us as we seek your face. Lord, we recognize that we can do nothing apart from you. And yet, Lord, you have given us all things. In fact, there is no good thing you will withhold from those who walk uprightly before you. Having given us your son, there is no lack that we have. We thank you. We ask that, Lord, as we look to you, as we look to your word, we pray that, Lord, you would show yourself strong, that you would make your will known, that you would strengthen and encourage our hearts, that you would lead us in your way. For the glory of Christ, we pray. Amen. Gospel-centered parenting. Now, from the scriptures, we see that discipleship is at the forefront of God's commission to his people. When we consider Christ's words to the disciples who went on to become the apostles. His call was to go forth and make disciples, teaching them to observe all that I have shown you. And so this call to discipleship is one that is bound up and intrinsic within our hearts and lives as God's people. And as we consider the issue and the matter of parenting, it became clear to me that actually this is just discipleship in another expression. This is just discipleship in another form. And in fact, we see evidence of that throughout the scriptures. In Galatians 4, it says that we are no longer slaves, but sons. We are children in Christ. No longer merely slaves or servants. And so in that, there's a recognition of our status as being given as one who is a child of the Father, the Heavenly Father. In 1 Timothy 3, when it speaks about the qualities and characteristics of one who is to lead the church, it is stated that he is to be one who is able to lead his home. A direct correlation is made between the responsibility of leading the church, which is the work of discipleship, and leading the home. And so, as I began to look at it, I began to realize that actually, this is a, that there is so much in common, there's so much to be learned. So much strength we're able to gain. 
so much help we're able to be benefited by as we consider how the two, if you like, activities relate. Parenting is something that is, as Pastor Rob said in his prayer, a challenge. Parenting is something that will humble the most haughty of people. And I speak from experience as one having two children and who has time and time again been humbled, not necessarily just by them, but ultimately by God as I've sought to parent my children. Parenting is a challenge. And for so many of us, our identity is wrapped up in what type of parent we are. Our sense of affirmation, our sense of achievement relates closely to what type of parent we are. Now, for some of us, you're not parents. Maybe you will be. But one of the things that I definitely want to bring home today is the fact that whether you are a parent of biological children or not, every single individual contributes to the role of parenting. Because every single individual in the church is supposed to contribute to the work of discipleship. Every individual. In Ephesians 4, we see it stated that the the, the gifts given, apostles, prophet, teacher, pastor, evangelist, were given for the perfecting, the completing of the saints in order that the saints may do the work of the ministry. So this version of Christianity that we have that is somewhat of a spectator sport where 90% of the people come and watch 10% of the people do the work of the ministry, that's not New Testament Christianity. And so even as we look at matters that relate to parenting, as someone who is committed to disciple others, as I know you are if you are in Christ and are here with us today. You will see the correlation and you will see the direct relationship and relevance even to you who are not parents. Now, my focus is gospel-centered parenting. Gospel-centered parenting. And I start there because actually... When we consider the work of discipleship, discipleship cannot happen in the absence of the gospel. Although some may try. Discipleship cannot happen in the absence of the gospel. And I would propose to you today that true God-glorifying parenting cannot happen in the absence of the gospel. And so, gospel-centered parenting is equivalent to gospel-centered discipleship. And it necessitates us having not only a firm understanding of, but also 
a clear submission to the superiority of the gospel. The gospel is that which is to be supreme in our understanding, but also governing our attitudes and actions. In John chapter 3, we encounter the most familiar verse of scripture that is known anywhere in the world. I remember watching the Olympics, the Winter Olympics one year, um, many years ago when I was younger. And as I watched the the Winter Olympics, I remember seeing someone in the crowd holding a a sign up beside the the bobsled um, course. Uh, You can't really call it a track, right? But the the, the bobsled course. And um, the sign simply said, John 3, 16. And every time the sled went past and the camera turned to that point, they stood there waving. (laughs) Now, I was young. I I couldn't tell you how old I was. It was a a number of years ago. But that really struck me. As someone who grew up in church, there was a certain degree of encouragement that I had that somebody was given a scripture reference. And over the years, I've kind of reflected on, on that and thought to myself, hmm, well, they had to try and communicate something as they went about mission. And what better than to give this provocative, although maybe not obvious to all, but easily referenced verse of scripture, John 3, 16. It's a verse that so many of us know by heart and love for the clarity. I remember once I was asked by a colleague at work, what is it that makes your life so different? And I said, well, I can only really um, put that down to um, God's work in my life through Christ. And they said, what is that all about? As a Scots lady, and she didn't have any Christian background um, at all. And was not really that way inclined. But she intentionally, on this particular occasion, sought me out, looked for me. And over lunch, intentionally asked me this question. And she said this question to me. She said, how would you explain God and the Bible? And if you were to just try and put that in a nutshell, how would you put that across? And I thought about it for a moment, almost trembling, thinking, that is such a huge question to ask. And then I just had the prompting, John 3, 16. It's all there. And I said, look, if you were a Martian from space and you knew nothing of how God has revealed himself, um, this is what I would share with you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Would not perish but have everlasting life. You can see that I memorized it in the King James, right? (laughs) And that encompasses the gospel like the seed encompasses the fruitful tree. 
You look at a seed and it doesn't look like much. But they say that the, the, the greatest oak trees grew from the smallest acorns. And so we recognize that compacted in this verse is the message of the gospel. And so I want to do my best to try and unpack how this relates to parenting from the context of discipleship. Hmm. I'm going to go at pace. This is recorded for your reflection. Take notes and um, <laughs> here we go. When we consider the context of John 3, we see Jesus speaking with what he himself states to be the teacher of Israel. He's speaking with Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel. This is one who knew the law. He knew the prophets. He knew the story of old. He knew the story of the patriarchs and the covenants. This was one who was taught, who was learned. He was schooled in the law. He was schooled in the purposes and plan of God as it was being revealed. And we see that this Pharisee Nicodemus in verse 1 came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So in chapter 2, Jesus performed his first miracle, turning water into wine at the marriage of Cana. Talk was spreading. Nicodemus acknowledged. And rather than just talking about Jesus, he went to him. Which is a side note for some of us to learn. In verse 3, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now that seems like a very random interjection at this point. Nicodemus says, we know that you're a teacher come from God. No one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus was clarifying true and false perception of God. Paul speaks about this in 1 Corinthians 4. That the natural man does not understand the things of the spirit, but it is revealed by the spirit. And so we cannot be reliant on our own perception of God. We need God to give us insight and understanding. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you. Unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. 
Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Now, in these verses, we see a number of things. We see that God is recognized as the parent and source of all life. We see that God gave, released his son, Jesus to glorify his divine nature and purpose. Instantly, there's a sense of parental relationship communicated. God the Father, Christ the Son. So God gave, released his Son to glorify his divine nature and purpose. We see in this the Son's obedience to the Father. We also see the son's delight to please the father. There is the son's commitment to glorify the father. And yet we also see the need for all who come to the father to be born anew through faith in the son. Salvation is only through the son the son in whom God delights, the son who God loves. When we think about the gospel and grasping a clear understanding of the gospel, it's such that we have to appreciate that the gospel is more than just repent and believe. When we see statements like that in the scripture, when we see even verses like John 3.16, we recognize that they are like suitcases. On the outside, they look like a simple single unit, but there's a lot of things packed in. I'm sure some of you can relate to that, having broken a few zips on suitcases, preparing to go away, I'm sure, at one time or another. And so... As we consider the, the scope of the gospel, and in Mark chapter 1, Mark records the fact that Jesus came preaching the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom. We appreciate that actually the gospel is found in the Old Testament, at the beginning of time, right through to Revelation and the end of time. 
Jesus himself said this in Luke 24, 27. When he walked on the road to Emmaus with the disciples, and it says that he expounded from Moses and the prophets, meaning the Old Testament, concerning himself and how they speak of him. Fundamentally, Jesus is the gospel. As we parent children, we are to parent children with the gospel being the goal. Now, often we find ourselves as parents parenting with different goals, even as Christians. For some, the goal is that our children will be a good person. We just want our children to be a good person, a productive contributor to society. For some, it goes beyond that. I want my child to be successful. I want them to have the success that I never had. I desire to see my child fulfill their potential. For others, it may be a bit more simple than that. You know what? I just want my child to be happy. None of these are gospel-centered goals in and of themselves. What is the true gospel-centered goal? That an individual might be in right relationship with God through a living, personal faith in Jesus, who they love. Anything else is a byproduct. Success, morality, fulfilled potential, happiness, all of those things. You know, a child will never be robbed of those things if they are fulfilling God's purpose for them, which is to be in right relationship with him through a living faith in Jesus whom they love. And so therefore, our, our job as parents, just as the job of the discipler, is to point our children to Jesus. To point them to Jesus in our words and in our actions and in our attitudes. And I stress the last part because so often we can find ourselves as Christian parents sending mixed messages to our children. We say, we, you know, we want you to know God and, you know, God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life and you should honor him in all that you do. And yet we then compromise when it comes to their desire for happiness. Well, you know, they just want to dance. That's what makes them happy. Christian fellowship, oh, well, it can fall by the wayside at the expense of this pursuit of happiness. Football makes them happy. Oh, as long as they're doing their, their, their homework, the fact that they don't really have time to interact around the Bible to get to know God, as long as they're academically achieving. And fundamentally, what we communicate in our mixed messages is that there are all of these other idols that share God's place of priority. And it's okay. 
I'll give you four words or four terms to summarize the scope of the gospel. And I found this tremendously helpful. And I'm sure and pray that you will also. Creation, fall, redemption, new creation. Creation, fall, redemption, and new creation. And in this, we have the gospel narrative. We have redemption story. The overarching plan and purpose of God being worked out. And as we help our children, and as we parent our children with a a gospel-centered parenting, we must give attention to all four aspects of the gospel story with keen reasons for that. Creation. Now, in verse 6, we see Jesus make reference, verse 6 of of John chapter 3. Jesus make reference to the beginning in an implied and indirect way, in a way that Nicodemus would have, exp- would have um, understood. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. That which is born of flesh is flesh. Where did the first birth take place? When did it take place? Under what circumstances? Furthermore, where did flesh come from in order to give birth to flesh? It takes us right back to the garden, to creation story itself. And in that, we recognize that God made man in his image and his likeness. In that he made humanity to be his image bearers, representing him as his governors in the earth under submission to his authority. God being the one who has made all has the right of ownership to every life. Every individual, it doesn't matter what nationality, it doesn't matter what culture, what creed, what background they were born into. Every individual, whether they acknowledge God or not, whether they choose to recognize him or not, it doesn't matter. God has the right of ownership of every life. Because every life comes from God. And so when we see in the scripture, Acts 17, Paul's at Mars Hill. He's speaking to a people who knew not the prophets and the story of Moses and Abraham and Adam. He still commands them to repent. He commands them to repent. How is it that he has the right to command these people to repent and turn to God whom they knew not. Because in him we live and move and what? Have our being. God has the right of ownership. God created humanity for his glory and not for our glory. For his glory and not our own. That's a very helpful truth 
to us as parents. Because it helps us to realize that our children were created for the glory of God. Our children were created for God's glory. Not for their own glory. And not for our glory. So often we can enter into bad habits and bad practice and bad attitudes as parents because our goal is that our children would glorify us. It seems like there's few things worse than being accused of being a bad parent, right? Maybe one of them is being accused of being a liar. I've never known how that works. Are you calling me a liar? I've just murdered someone. I've just stolen. And, but don't call me a liar. But it seems that being considered a bad parent is something that is likened unto that. You know what? We're able to relax. Our children were not made for our glory. They were made for God's glory. Another reason that it's important that our children understand that they came from God, that God is their creator, is that it establishes the supreme authority. How many times have I heard people lamenting, crying over rebellious children? Children in school won't obey their teachers. Children on the streets won't obey the police. Children in the home don't obey their parents. And we find ourselves in that place because actually the supremacy of God's authority over their life has not been clearly established. It's not clearly understood. I remember what it felt like to have my grandmother tell me that God is watching. Simple statement. My, my grandma would say it like this. God, he sees and he knows all things. God, he sees and he knows all things. Even the very depths of the heart. <laughs> Listen. Talk about the fear of God being the beginning of wisdom. Tenderize my heart. My conscience was supple. Because I knew, even if I got, I pulled one over on my gran, even if I got away with it in school, listen, God, he sees and he knows all things. There's no getting away from God. I think this is going to have to be two weeks, you know, bro. <laughs> now, why is this, how does this practically become significant? You see, God's authority means that when we speak to our children about right and wrong, we do not speak in our own name. We do not speak according to our own opinion. But we're communicating to them God's expectation and the fact that God will hold accountable. 
How many times, for those of us who are parents, maybe even for those who have like nieces and nephews and so on, you've wished that you could be there all the time with those children to help them stay out of trouble and not be influenced by bad company and find themselves in all kinds of... The reality is that we can't be there all the time. But when they understand that God is there all the time, it's like the psalmist said in Psalm 139, even if I make my bed in hell, whoa! It doesn't matter how dark the rave is. God's eyes are still there. It's the foundation of accountability. So, some practical applications in view of that point. Firstly, bear in mind that our children are bombarded constantly with lies about our origins. Constantly. And so, 1 Peter 3.15 says, always be ready to give a reason for the hope that is within you. Parents, let us galvanize ourselves as one who is able to be ready to give a reason when our children say, well, why do you believe that God made us? Because, you know, my biology teacher, I mean, they get it in cartoons even before they hit secondary school. And they get it in the, the picture books and we must be ready to give a reason for our understanding and conviction with regards to the fact that God made us. Are you ready? Are you prepared to do that? Because we can turn around and say to the child, well, it's because the Bible says so, thinking that's going to end the argument, only to hear why. That moment in a child's life when they realize the power of that three-letter word. That that three-letter word will just keep any argument on the table. Go to your room. Why? Because I said so. Why? Another thing we must do in response to the fact that God made our children is we must constantly reaffirm to them that they belong to God, we are merely caretakers. We are merely stewards of their lives. They belong to God. We are merely stewards. We're communicating two things in that. One, God cares about their life. They're his. Two, that we are under his authority. We are under his authority as we steward their lives. Children, and we'll talk more about this in, in a bit, but children will readily find excuses not to listen to us because we don't do what we say. How many times as parents do we find ourselves in a place where we do as I say? And in our minds, we're thinking, but not as I do. <laughs> I remember seeing a tide turn in, in the, the community, if you like, 
um, in which I grew up in, in South London. Um, I grew up in a generation that was probably, mm, let me say, the last of its, of its kind in the sense that the generation before me, all my, like, I, I don't have older brothers and so on, but my um, cousins who I grew up with as siblings, my older cousins, all of them were taken to church. They had to go to church. In my generation, I had to go to church, but I saw the tide turn. I used to um, ride as assistant on the Sunday school bus. And I remember going to flats around Brixton. I, I grew up in church in Brixton, in the estates and so on, going knocking on the doors for the children to come to church. And the children would be sent to church and the parents would stay at home. So they were no longer taken to church by their parents. They were sent off. I personally correlate the degeneration that we've seen in our culture with that turning of the tide. I'm not saying that all of those who were forced to go to church before that were Christians. But I am saying that it had a salty influence upon their life in the way that God intended. So it's important that we help our children appreciate that we are stewards of their lives. And we are accountable to God for the way in which we steward their lives. Also, as they grow and grow in understanding... We help them to understand that God created them with moral choice and that they will ultimately give account for themselves. All of these things stem from a healthy understanding, appreciation and communication of the fact that God made us. And yet, after creation, there was the fall. And so, Adam in the garden, was given the fruit by his wife, of which they both ate, the fruit that they were forbidden by God to eat, the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they plunged humanity into the darkness and chaos of sin. All of us, as human beings, are affected by sin. In Romans chapter 3, it clearly states, there is none good, no, not one. No, not one, emphatically. This can be a challenge for us as parents, as those contributing as the village to raise children, because they're so sweet and they're so cute especially when they're small, right? Little Sierra up here in a white silky dress and little Mikel with his little Elvis suit on up here. Like. <laughs> they look so cute, so sweet. And in every parent's eyes, their child can do no wrong. Or at the very least, they're a good kid, really. It seems cold and heartless to say your child is not a good child. The gospel tells us that your child is born in sin and shaped 
formed in iniquity. I was having a conversation with someone the other day. They were talking about their little child. And we came to the conclusion, who needs to teach them how to sin? Who needs to teach them how to snatch that toy from that other child? Who needs to teach them how to lie about the fact that they just went in the biscuit jar? But so often, we trivialize that as being just um, an exception to the norm because they're good kids, really. That's not gospel-centered parenting. Our children are born in sin, and they need the gospel from day dot. Often, we can find it a challenge to admit the fact that our children are not good kids because of the way it reflects on us. Because it can sound like we're conceding to the fact that, you know what, I'm a bad parent. And yet again, we recognize that these children are God's. He set us as, as stewards. And as we utilize the tools that he's given us as parents, we're able to help see them grow for his glory by his grace. As they grow, we need to help our children to understand that they are sinners by nature, born in team Adam. They're born in team Adam. And being born in team Adam, they are under, they are subject to the sin that the team has been. So if you, in, in the urban catechism, there's an illustration that we give when we help people to understand what it means to be born in sin. And we talk about the fact that all who are born in sin are born into team Adam. Now, if you have a team playing a sport and that team loses the game because of one individual, does the individual lose the game or the whole team? The whole team. I mean, let's not talk about Brazil and the World Cup. <laughs> and yet we appreciate that. That's standard practice. And... Uh, Scripture tells us in 1 Corinthians that in Adam all die. We're all subject to sin and the consequence of that being death, both physical and eternal separation from God. And so we need to help our children in the light of the gospel understand that they are in team Adam and that they need to, through trusting in Jesus, come into team Jesus and experience life, the life that he's credited, that he's given through his sacrifice. We help our children to accept that they're not good children. They are sinners in need of the gospel. It also helps us, when we appreciate the dynamics of the fall, to recognize that actually, you as a parent are fallen and not perfect. This idol of perfect parenting is one that can have us in such bondage. I'm a sinner saved by grace. And that there is actually a, a, a liberation that comes through understanding that. That I don't have to strive to meet this ideal 
I don't have to put on face before my children even. Not allowing them to see the cracks in my life. But actually, as I acknowledge my weakness, as I acknowledge my sin and my need for Jesus, I am modeling to my children the gospel. And so, the fool and the knowledge of it helps us to appreciate not only are our children not good, neither are we. So we had, I said four, four times, right? Creation. Second one was fall. Third one is redemption. Amen. You're with me. Redemption. Now, this is the weightiest part of the story. The weightiest part of the story, as we see in verse 16 of our chapter. There are three things communicated in the story of redemption that must be included in our conversation and attitude as we give ourselves to gospel-centered parenting. Judgment, mercy, and grace. Judgment, mercy, and grace. God is holy and just and must judge sin. One of the byproducts of not having our children understand that actually they're not good children is the fact that they won't expect judgment. And we can be parents who are not inclined to judge our children's wrongs. Furthermore, we can be inclined to make excuse for their wrongs because they're good kids really. That's not doing justice to the gospel because the gospel only makes sense when we understand that God must judge sin. He is holy and just. To say that God loves you is only one aspect of the story. God loves you, but he will judge you for your sin unless you repent. And so we help our children to understand that they are awaiting certain judgment if they don't repent. I've heard conversations with um, parents who have shared that with their young children. And it sounds like a harsh reality to share with a junior. Does that mean, mommy, that if I die in my sin, I'm... I'm going to be punished by God. Yes. Switch off the light. Good night. <laughs> now, it sounds cold. A <laughs> children need to be parented from a gospel-centered perspective. Of course, we're going to unpack the rest. But there's a saying that I've heard, I think was quoted by Ray Comfort of Wesley. 
He said, afflict the comforted and comfort the afflicted. When someone is in comfort and ease concerning their eternal destiny, when they're feeling kind of like everything's cool, everything's nice, me and God are all right, and yet they've not repented and put their faith in Jesus, that soul needs to be afflicted. You're not right with God, and God will judge you for your sin, and you will spend eternity in torment if you do not put your faith in Christ alone. That comforted soul that is at ease needs to hear that. They need to be stirred up. As one brother said in his song many years ago, he said, I pray you don't have peace tonight. I pray you don't sleep tonight. And that's the truth. And that troubled me when I first heard that lyric. Don't we want people to have peace? Don't we want them to sleep easy? Doesn't God give his beloved rest? Well, if they're not the beloved of God, there should be no peace. There should be no rest until they accept the king. Until they make peace with God. Pilgrim's progress is still a classic, even to this day. And in that, we see that as being Pilgrim's plight. He had the burden of sin on his back that he walked with and he couldn't shake. And it was only in meeting with the one who's able to relieve him of that, that he found peace. So let's not pull any punches. Help our children to appreciate that. God is holy. He is just. (laughs) I heard one brother say in a lyric, God isn't like your mum. Who doesn't think that your feet stink? (laughs) God is such that He will be very upfront and uncompromising in His preparedness to expose an individual to their sin and subsequent judgment. We need to help. Our children understand that the works that they do, the works of unrighteousness that they do, are evidence of their sinful heart and the need for a new heart through the new birth. So often we try and correct behavior. We try and modify behavior with rules and with laws and with regulations without recognizing the heart from which that comes. And yet the gospel of grace speaks to the heart. Jesus achieved what the law of Moses could not, in that he changed his hearts. So as an application, we must have boundaries. And we must judge wrongdoing because by not judging wrongdoing, we are misrepresenting the gospel and we are misrepresenting God. Just being a permissive parent that lets anything go suggests that that's what God is like. Because as a parent, we are to model God to our children. We are to represent the gospel. And so sometimes for an easy life, just to keep them happy, 
we can be very relaxed. Also, it means that we as parents are to accept and acknowledge when we've done wrong. Because all have sinned, right? There are times when I've had to go to my girls and ask them for forgiveness. Me with my bullish self, rough them up, course them up, talk hard to them. Only to recognize afterwards that I was in the wrong. I had no place. I had to swallow my pride. It could have been easy to just, well, whatever. So I got the wrong end of the stick. But still, find something else to blame them for. But when we go to our children and recognize and acknowledge when we have been wrong and ask them for forgiveness, we are modeling the truth of the gospel. We are recognizing that and we are communicating to them that even we are under the authority of God. And even we know that we would be subject to judgment apart from God's forgiveness and his grace. Mercy. God offers forgiveness of sin and exemption from wrath because Jesus took God's anger on the cross. Mercy and grace, twin sisters. Very often when grace is spoken of, it's spoken of with the implicit understanding that it incorporates mercy. What is the difference between the two? Well, mercy is God not giving us what we deserve. We deserve judgment. We deserve punishment for our sin. And yet, God withholding that judgment, and furthermore, withholding it from us and yet pouring it out upon his son, whom he loves, in whom he is well pleased, so that we could have opportunity to know that justice has been served, God's holiness has been honored, and yet still we're able to be forgiven. God offers forgiveness of sin and exemption from his wrath because Jesus took God's anger on the cross. And so in this, we see the light of the gospel revealed. God is merciful and kind, compassionate and slow to anger. And so, as we recognize God's mercy towards sinners, and as we communicate this to our children, we're also to show mercy. There are times when our children will deserve punishment, and we can use that on occasion as a gospel opportunity to withhold that punishment making it clear that actually God doesn't give us what we deserve because of Jesus, because he put it upon Jesus. And we take the responsibility for that wrong. 
not sweeping it under the carpet, not pretending that it never happened, that it's okay. But no, rather, recognizing that it was wrong, and yet we choose to take that wrong upon ourselves. Grace, on the other hand, is mercy is God not giving us what we do deserve. Grace is God giving us what we don't deserve. God has adopted us into his family and makes us sons in Christ. He blesses us with an eternal inheritance in Christ Jesus. It's not just that God forgives sin, but he lavishes his love upon the forgiven sinner. And so practically we teach our children to be gracious to others. We teach them to be gracious to others even as we demonstrate grace toward them. Favor that they don't deserve. Now this must be done considerately and in balance. Um, we have DMT group on a Tuesday, discipleship ministry training, and one of the brothers shared a, a quote from um, the book Manhood Restored by Eric Mason. Um, we've got it on the bookshelf, uh, um, should you wish to look it up. Shameless plug there. <laughs> and in it, he speaks of how um, Pastor Eric Mason speaks of how he saw a gospel opportunity to show one of his sons the real meaning of mercy and grace. And his son had done wrong and was deserving of punishment. And he said to his son, okay, I'm not going to punish you for what you've done. But furthermore, I'm going to take the punishment that you deserved. And understand this. This is what Jesus done for all who would put their faith in him, taking the punishment of the father. And he proceeded to beat himself in the presence of his son. I said, my brother took it to another level. <laughs> I know if some of those beatings that I got when I was younger, listen, <laughs> It's one thing to withhold punishment. It's another thing to take it upon yourself. Now, obviously, that's not something you do every day. <laughs> Children will just be, oh, my gosh. Any, any, any instance of resentment, they're like, all right, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to smash the neighbor's car window. He's going to beat himself properly for that one. <laughs> But it's that occasional occurrence in that meaningful moment that you know is going to communicate the gospel truth. All right. I'm going to finish this, the next two points, in three minutes. So... That's the truth and heart of the gospel. Judgment, mercy, and grace. And yet the story doesn't end there. 
because there must be a response to the gospel. The Bible calls people to respond to the call of God. That response is to be repentance, faith, and fruit. Repentance is responding by agreeing with God, recognizing our guilt and surrendering surrendering to him. As we school our children, we teach them to recognize that when they do wrong, they first have sinned against God. This is important because in those times when they don't care to obey us, because they see some kind of hypocrisy or inconsistency in our lives, they have no excuse but to obey God because sin is first against God. Faith is trusting in Christ and his finished work of salvation, distrusting anything else. Our children can't be led to believe that because they go to church, because they grew up in children's church, because they have the picture story Bible, because they know how to sing John 3.16 and Proverbs 3.5, that these things are what make us right with God. Faith is to trust in Christ and his finished work. His death taking our punishment in our place as our substitute. Resurrected on the third day, affirmation of job complete, finished, mission accomplished, salvation secured, justification granted. This is where our children's faith is to lie. Fruit. The purpose of the command is love from a sincere heart. Let's not be confusing as we communicate the response to the gospel. Repentant faith will result in fruit. Will quoted it earlier. Faith without works is dead. It's not sufficient that our children have a profession of faith. Many grow with a profession of faith. I grew with a profession of faith as one who grew up in church until I was confronted with the fact that actually... Your life isn't consistent with one as a teenager in secondary school. Your life isn't consistent with one who professes Jesus as Lord of your life. Where's your fruit? Says the man from Del Monte, if you're old enough to remember. Where's your fruit? And that fruit is to be not just outward acts of religious observance, but a heart that is truly submitted to Christ as Lord. And yet we must, in conclusion, put before our children a very understated aspect of the gospel message. In fact, I feel that this is an area in which the prosperity gospel has done great damage. Because we speak of creation and we speak of fall and we speak of redemption, but we speak little of the new creation that awaits us. And our kids are left with earthly aspirations. I've got to get that money. I've got to get those cars. I've got to have that respect. I've got to have power. Realizing, not, not realizing that it's just temporary. It's all going to burn in flames at the end. And yet there is an eternal kingdom to inherit. And I've heard prosperity gospel preachers saying, well, who needs gold in heaven? 
I need it now. Who, who's waiting for heaven? Forget heaven. It's about having it now. I've spoken before how I feel that the riots in this country that was experienced a couple years back were, were contributed to by the church and the prosperity gospel because we just present a sanctified greed, a, 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 a holified covetousness. It's the same goal, just a different means. That's not the aspiration that our children are to have. We're supposed to put before them a different vision, a different purpose, a different aspiration that they give themselves to. And even when we esteem them to be doctors, lawyers, teachers, and millionaires, righteous endeavors, if you like, good moral endeavors, and yet discourage them when they say they want to be pastors and leaders and missionaries or Bible translators. We then communicate the same sentiment and send that mixed message. And so, may we rejoice in the gospel. May these foundational principles help us. May we see the relationship between being effective disciple makers and effective parents. May we not see our investment in the life of church community, the believing body, as being a distraction from our parenting. May we cause it to work hand in hand and in unity. Because it is through our equipping that we are able to be faithful, gospel-centered parents raising our children in the light of the gospel truth. We recognize that as free moral agents, they will have to give an account for themselves. We cannot do that for our children as much as we may desire to, as much as we may want to, even as Paul in Romans 9 spoke about himself being a curse that the Jews would be, be, be one. Surely that's our hearts as a parent. Well, let us substantiate that heart with communication and actions and attitudes that correspond with the gospel. Amen? I'm going to ask the team to join me again. Um, the goal of the gospel is not to make people better. The goal of the gospel is not to make better people. That's moralism. The goal of the gospel is to bring people into right relationship with God. May this be our focus and our hearts for 
our children and the young people in our lives as we give ourselves to those opportunities to disciple them in the gospel. Shall we stand? Heavenly Father, we do acknowledge your greatness. We acknowledge your greatness, Lord, in revealing yourself in the person of Christ. And even as we consider the dynamic of the relationship between yourself and your son, Father, we are in awe of just the ultimate example of parenthood. That you would even give your only son, your eternal son, for us, for our sin. That your glorious divine nature may be revealed to the praise of your glorious grace. And so may we give our children likewise to glorify your great and divine person and purposes to the praise of your glorious grace. For it is you who have made us and not we ourselves. Help us, Lord, as we struggle in this broken and fallen world to be parents that are faithful, gospel-centered parents, Lord. And Lord, I, I commit all of our children to you, Lord. All of them, Lord, wherever they are, Lord. And all those who are on their way and yet to come, Lord, I commit them to you, Lord. And pray, Lord, that they would be a generation of worshipers whose hearts are inclined to you, who would walk in fervent faith and lavish love, Lord, to your glory. Have your way, Lord, we pray with thanksgiving today. In the name of your glorious Son, Amen. To find out more about us, visit our website at calvarychapelsouthlondon.org or find us on Facebook and Twitter at CC South London. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.